The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with The Birth Circle, and today I have Laura O'Brien, who is a licensed midwife here in Utah, and I'm so excited for you to come on today because uh, we're going to talk about how to get to baby here and all of the blocks that happen to get to baby here, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but tell me a little bit about your story. What, What made you decide to become a midwife? Well, I do think it was probably written in my DNA before I knew about it. I've always cared about birth and babies. And when I was young, my family actually started, my parents began a crisis pregnancy center to help women. So I volunteered there actually at a different location when I was 12. And I just cared a lot about families and birth. And then one day somebody invited me to their birth and it came naturally to me to coach them through labor ups and downs. And I'd never before been at a birth. I think I was about 17 at the time. And then I decided that this was a field I was really interested in, but life didn't take that course. So I ended up... Because you were only 17. That's pretty young. (laughs) Of course. So I I actually did work many different jobs and I traveled the world and I came back and uh, to the United States and I decided to just start working office jobs, which led me into hospital jobs. And so I became administrative ended up in this hospital spectrum. So by the time I was pregnant with my first baby, I was in my early 20s, and I had heard every horror story Mm -hmm. on the planet. And everybody told me, don't you dare attempt to labor without an epidural. What are you thinking? And I really didn't even know if I could believe in myself at that point. Mm -hmm. But my own labor, my mom had me before she even reached a delivery room. I was the second born. And uh, the my brother after me was a home birth. And so I, I had a little bit of confidence and I'd read a few books and I thought- You I'm were gonna... made for birthing. I thought, you know, stock. I have birthing mm-hmm. hips. I can I can do this. That's what I had been told, <laughs> yeah, right? Good birthing hips. Oh, brother. <laughs> but there was a lot of fear to combat. Mm-hmm. And, and that's in our culture. It's totally in our culture. I How had... can you not grow up as a little girl and see birth as a scary thing? As a, you know, yeah, and birth can be scary, but really it's not- in, right. in and of itself, scary. Right. I yeah. didn't know that birth was normal at mm-hmm. that point in time. I didn't know um, that it could be beautiful. I actually read Ina May's Guide to Childbirth, I think, as one of the first books to try and flush out some of the the toxins I'd had just mm-hmm. being in it all the time with, with every kind of... Um, thing that could go wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. that I had heard from other people. I decided I'm going to try this labor... And I was working in the hospital. I'm going to try this labor in the hospital with some emotional support. My my mother was there. She was supportive. And um, I decided to do it. And then I did. And you did. You had an unmedicated birth. I had an baby? unmedicated birth in the hospital. I remember the anesthesiologist coming in several times. You sure? You sure you don't want an epidural? And I just remember staying very present in mm-hmm. the moment. And there's nothing wrong with an epidural if a woman wants it. Right. But to go into a birth b- based on fear that you can't do it without it, that's what mm-hmm. I have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Like if you go in and you're like, I would like an epidural because I've read everything and I feel really good. I mean, I know people that do that. They're like, nope, I would like an epidural. Great. 
But to choose an epidural out of fear, mm, no more of that. Right. We're, we're, we're too advanced as millennials to keep choosing those choices. So I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I really felt like if I kept reminding myself, am I okay in this moment? My answer was always yes. Mm -hmm. As long as I kept to the moment I was in. And I'm not saying... Interesting. Yeah. I'm not saying that there weren't ups and downs. There were times where I felt like my labor was broken. I was on a clock. Um, I thankfully had hired a a pretty good OB at the time who was um, very patient with me. And eventually, you know, four and a half hours of pushing and I had a baby and I was really grateful. In hindsight, I would do things completely different with positions Well, yeah, now you're labor. a midwife. So now I know things. So how, um, how long, this, you had your first baby at 20? So then when uh, 24. You, 24. Yeah. So then mm-hmm. when did you become a midwife? So actually that started my path. So 2007, I really decided I want to be home with my baby and I love birth and I had had this unmedicated birth and I decided to take a doula training and a childbirth education course. There's your gateway drug, that doula training. (laughs) This is getting And actually I fell in love with teaching people as well. My childbirth education class, being able to teach classes and equip others with Mm -hmm. tools that I didn't have going into labor really became, and because I was so equipped with working in a hospital, that was my norm. Um, Just out of the administrative job I'd had at the time. So I was able to train and help equip the families that I worked with to have a really good birth experience and have some tools and education and mm-hmm. information. Yeah. And by the time I'd been a doula for several years, my next baby, I was, it was two years later, and I wanted a birth center birth. But the midwives told me, well, if you change your mind and labor, go ahead and let us know and we'll come to your home. So they did a home visit before I had my baby. Well, wouldn't you know, I assumed it'd be a long labor like the first one. Mm-hmm. And the midwife actually said I could call anytime, but I was so relaxed with my body and I knew what positions to do and I knew how to listen to myself at that point and I had a lot of confidence and I just labored really calmly at home by myself with my toddler in his crib asleep. Next thing you know, I'm realizing I'm in transition. I'm about Mm. to have a baby. So the midwife was on her way. My mom was on her way. And um, everyone missed it. Oh, my goodness. um, My husband at the time walked in right as I my water broke and I delivered a baby and she just came out and to, her initials <laughs> wow. were TNT. She was a very spontaneous oh birth. My goodness. <laughs> and I was grateful that I was able to do that at home. The midwife arrived shortly after. Well, and by, yeah, it wasn't a choice, but it, it you was get to catch your own baby. And- it was interestingly an empowering experience for me. But of course, by my third, I really wanted a home birth, water birth with lots of midwife support. With the princess, the whole goddess experience. I wanted everything. <laughs> All the Christmas lights and the candles and the mandalas. Right. And the... <laughs> okay. I just wanted it to be beautiful. Well, what I didn't know was about one of the subjects we're, we're going to mention today is about optimal fetal positioning. And my baby was not quite in the right position, my third born. His hand was up by his head. We like to call those Superman babies. I had one of those. And they are not comfortable oh, to birth. No, not I fun. Especially say. when the midwife pulls him out and then you the elbow and the, yep, okay. So I planned <laughs> on catching my own baby and I was in a birth pool in my living room with the wonderful mid- midwife and her support person there. And I reached down and closed my eyes and just felt his hand and thought, I'm not sure if I can do this. And I kept my eyes closed tight. She said, the midwife asked me, would you like a little help? 
And I just nodded. So with a little help, he came out right into the water, happy water birth. And I, I gathered him up in my arms. And he, he still talks about how he was born in the water and he loves to swim. And that's kind of his personality. Mm. So each experience was very different for me. Yep. And they all are too. Even if you plan one thing, you just never, every single birth, yeah. completely different. And then um, shortly after my third born, I had an unexpected um, divorce situation where my my spouse at the time decided he didn't want to be married, and I was postpartum with my third baby. Oh, my goodness. And it just threw me into a place of having to reevaluate everything. Now, I'd been a doula for years, and I loved birth and families, and I actually had a very successful business as a doula. But I had always thought I'd become a midwife when my kids were grown. And mm-hmm. because of this life change situation, I really decided, no, I need to pursue this now. So after my third born, I decided to follow through and really become a midwife. And so I actually worked at some birth centers and moved states with my three little ones. I was a single mom for some years. How do you be on call and be a midwife with being a single mom? Oh, it's difficult. Wow. It is difficult. That I won't say that there weren't um, moments of stress and or tears in those training years, um, but one day at a time, mm-hmm. and you find some good support, and sometimes your support changes, and sometimes you're praying that it'll work out, and it does. And I had some really supportive midwives as well who I was working with, and they could be there first if I couldn't get there right away, so that worked out. Nicely. Through those years, there were lots of ups and downs with training, but I never stopped feeling like this was a calling, feeling like this was what I was meant to do. Mm -hmm. Every baby that I have ever helped, every family that I have ever helped has had an impact both on me and then they remember those experiences going on and on and on. And we, we know from studies that women are actually able to remember how they were made to feel in labor more so than the details of their actual labor. So they may not remember every dilation point Mm -hmm. and they may not remember what every contraction felt like, but they remember how they were treated and how they were made to feel. So making a difference while I was going through all those ups and downs in my own life, I still focused on families and helping them. And thankfully I was able to remarry and gain another wonderful child through marriage and, and my life has been beautifully supported in my midwifery years. Um, by my family, but they know that I'm there to make a difference. And sometimes mm-hmm. I even have to tell my now much older children, yes, I'm going to help this family because they need me there. You know, I um, I had, the first time I saw you, I saw you in action a couple of times before like we formally met because, you know, as a filmmaker, I go into these births kind of as a fly on the wall. And I just remember the first time I watched you in practice and I'm like, who is this like person, this magic person? Because you were just, you were just holding this woman and I think you were actually caressing her hair and you were talking her through some really, really rough contractions. And you were just like, she was just melting like butter in your hands. And I was like, I had never really seen a midwife do that. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's cute. Maybe, you know, and then I saw you the next birth and you did it again. And I saw your mom's reacted. And, and so now hearing you say that makes a lot of sense. You go in there very purposefully mm-hmm. as a support, as holding space and, That gives you probably a lot of satisfaction to be there for that woman. Yeah. All of my clients, I I pour a lot into them. And I love being able to be at a birth 
and really make a difference for them. So yes, whether it's physical touch or whether it's teaching them something that is going to help them, for instance, there's always a golden position where the same level of intensity contraction is going to feel entirely different in that golden position. Okay, yeah, that's a great segue. Let's launch into it. So we want to talk about optimal fetal positioning and all the ways a baby can get stuck and unstuck. And so, yeah, I've noticed that like a woman will be doing okay and then the midwife will ask her to move and then the next contraction, she just hits the fan. Like it's completely different. Same, I mean, she's the same stage in her labor, but moving that position made the contraction different. So, right, right. So I personally learned and some of it was through education that I received and some of it was through life experience and some of it was through intuition, what to do for different stages of labor. But I will say the the short version that I taught in classes was drink, pee, move every 30 to 45 minutes. Mm. So for sure, stay mobile. For sure, change your position often. And when you move to a new position in labor, give it at least three contractions because your body has to adjust to that position. Yeah, why is moving good? Well, that baby is in there like a puzzle piece in your body. And also connecting with your baby during that process is really important. So speaking to your baby, words that really help them to understand you want them to shift position and move. So that may sound different. Yeah, I was going to say, is the baby really like conscious of that? Or like, how does the baby, well, I've heard that, I've heard people say, oh, me and my baby, we did such a good job. Like what part of the whole birth does the baby get to decide? Does does it move in in reaction to how you move? And like, how does it work? There's a couple factors that we can't do anything about. For instance, personality. I see personality come really? through in birth. Little stinker beans. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, your your babies that want to be in a funny position, they have personality quirks and and fun things about them. Or trailblazer babies that come out really fast. Or you know, world changers and all these different personalities. However, I will say that. Logically, if you look at a pelvis and the shape, ideally you want a baby to be facing head down and facing the mother's spine. Okay, so you want him looking at your okay. Haha. Mm-hmm. See, I didn't know what I did not know what posterior meant until I started watching all you midwives in action and I finally learned. But I had two posterior nine and a half pound babies. And so basically that's their back and the back of their head grinding into my spine and my tailbone. Right. Super fun. So you want the baby, and they call those sunny side up, right? Sunny side up babies. So you want your baby um, anterior, so you want their back to your belly button. And I I also just learned that if their back is to your belly button, the belly button sticks out, right? Because it's pushing. Right. Oftentimes. that's a way to tell. Yes. Yeah. So you want the baby to come out facing down, facing against your tailbone. Right. The face. Yeah. Okay. Right. So a posterior baby is one we want to try to turn in labor with natural methods, changing position, changing mom's dynamic of her pelvis. The client can, for instance, do some side lunges and some dangling and bring the baby down in station. And So why, do, why does the baby go posterior? The baby will go posterior for several reasons. Now, here in America, we see more posterior babies than in other countries. Any guess why that is? Because we sit on our butt. Uh huh. <laughs> we tend to have recliner chairs. We tell moms to kick up their feet. We have, mm. even if you're driving, you're typically in a reclined position. So, in order to be ergonomically correct for labor, you actually want your hips higher than your knees. 
So you would have to put a pillow under your seat um, when your you're sitting. higher than your knees. That sounds like you're sitting on a bar stool all the time, right? You could be, or just a pillow underneath you or kind of leaning forward. Some people get a, a birth ball, which is just an exercise ball to sit on. Or you could lean forward, sit cross-legged. There's many different ways. And so in other cultures, if you've traveled the world at all, they tend to do more squatting mm. and more cross-legged sits than they do reclined especially um, around the world in some of these faster birthing areas. So here in America, we're so busy telling women to lean back. And what do we do right when they get to the hospital in early labor? Typically, always stick them on their backs. Stick them on their backs. Mm-hmm. That almost always will make for a posterior baby if they spend the majority of so, early labor. So I mean, labor. like breach, breach is when the feet are down versus head down. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a posterior wouldn't be too hard to flip, right? Because they're just it's just a rotation. How come my babies wouldn't flip? Tell me why they wouldn't flip. <laughs> that was not fun. Yes, there's lots of reasons that they won't flip. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is if the water is ruptured, there's not as much buoyancy for a baby to move up and change mm. position and come back and re-engage. So in that case, I will sometimes rebozo a baby. And this word rebozo is is just a word for a scarf that we rock a baby with. So I will often put a mom on hands and knees if she'd like me to try to rebozo her baby to a better position. Mm -hmm. And what it involves is wrapping that scarf underneath her belly and then rocking up and down and gently maneuvering that baby to change from the posterior position to OA. And we'll, we'll give you a minute to pause this and go to YouTube and Google Rebozo. Just kidding. It's dreamy, though. I've Because, you know, you it's have true. all this weight on your belly, and then when you lean forward, so you're usually on hands and knees, right? Mm-hmm. And then you wrap this, and you're standing behind her, and you kind of pull up like a sling. So you put yes. her belly in a sling, and then you kind of... Wiggle a little bit. It's dreamy. And babies seem to enjoy it. Almost like a (laughs) hammock that swings back and forth. They prefer to be OA because they fit best in the pelvis instead of posterior. So they actually usually rock around to the front. I'll say they would prefer to be anterior. They prefer to be in the correct position. It's better for them. Got it. They don't bruise their noses on the way out. You can also put an ice pack on a mother's back in labor. That really helps. Why? Well, they just turn and they don't want that against the back oh. of their head. So oh, how they'll funny. actually turn around and to give themselves some distance from the back of their head and they'll face it instead, which is what we want. And the smart so little things. Ice pack on the back is another one you can do to get a baby <sighs> out of the posterior position. There's a lot of other positions you can do, such as side lunges and, and dangling that can help this baby move. So I would say maintaining mobility is Mm -hmm. one of the things that can really help. Other babies just have a different process. So you're actually going to have to talk through some things with that baby. And you might have to let them know, I really need you to turn. You might also have to get internal and decide, am I tense? Am I stressed at this moment? Can I relax? And maybe even lay down for a while. There's some leg lift positions you can lay in in labor where your baby can do all the work of turning while you simply relax. Oh, cool. Because you're taking all the, le- if you lift your leg, you're taking all the pressure in the pelvic mm-hmm. area, pelvis, so your baby can make that flip easier. Right. So if you're working on spinning a baby or turning them to a better position, um, you may have heard of peanut balls. They're a funny shaped ball that can go between they your legs. They look leg. like a peanut. <laughs> they really do look like a peanut. Those are helpful. Many different positions. And like I said, finding that golden position. But sometimes it has to do with a mom that's really tense. Mm-hmm. And she may need just a bit more coaching. Yeah. And she may need some encouraging words. But really rotation of baby has to do with rotation of mom. So up to the bathroom and 
empty that bladder and the baby's head can move down. And if you change your position a lot, that will also help. Yeah, because when I was in the hospital, they basically said he's posterior kind of like as a as a life sentence. And I guess that's, I didn't, I, it turned out all my babies were posterior because um, I would used to sit in an office chair a lot of my pregnancies. And uh, so that makes a lot of sense. But the I, I don't believe the girls were born posterior. I think they were born anterior because I was mm-hmm. uh, up and moving the whole time, especially the last one. It was a, a water birth on my hands and knees. So the... But the boys, they just, they just birthed that, they just birthed that way. And the labor was very difficult because with every contraction or surge, that baby's head would just jam into my, my, um, pelvis or my tailbone. So back labor. So you can't, mm-hmm. back labor, that's what it's called. So, so you would recommend like, you that. can flip it really early in labor right. and you say that, do you still sometimes deliver posteriors? They just oh, absolutely. turn? Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, I've delivered babies in many different positions and there is something to attitude of the mom and really being determined and then just allowing baby to descend with uh, whether it's a short cord or a placenta, all together. So sometimes it takes time and patience. Now, there are things we can do, sterile water injections for back labor. Mm, what's that? So they're actually just a very small gauge needle with sterile water, and we go just barely under the skin in four places on the mom's back. What? And it can cause a block to the pain signals. It's like acupuncture? Similar. But with sterile water, and it oh really goodness, does block cool. the back pain. And it blocks the pain, so she, the baby's still doing the whole cramming. So this would be the... a client who says to me, I can handle labor, I'm doing really well, but this back pain, I can't this... seem to get past. So uh-huh. if, if a tub of water doesn't work, if massage doesn't work, then we need to go to the next level. Wow. And so a sterile water block can be helpful, and it's it's not medication necessarily, nope. so she's still safe in an out-of-hospital scenario. And so we like to do that when a mom really, really needs help. Very cool. But with rebozo rocking and other techniques, as a matter of fact, when I was a doula, I remember one client in particular had been told she has to have a C-section. She'd been in labor um, about 12 hours and probably pushed three. And the OB came in and said, we're going to have to do a C-section. We don't see your baby progressing. And Mm. this mom, she was actually 42, having her first baby, but really, really committed, a healthy woman that really wanted a a healthy baby and a vaginal birth. So I asked the doctor if she would kindly give us one hour to work on baby position. And she agreed. And I got a rebozo out. And I had this mom, I said, if you're willing to be active, I'm willing to work with you. And coached her through, I would say within that hour, we probably did 15 different positions and several trips to the bathroom and up and knees lifted, high knees, some hands and knees. And I can actually back a baby slightly out of the pelvis with the rebozo by rocking upward toward mom's head. Mm, yeah. And then sense. let baby re-engage upright at a better angle. So some deep squats after that. So the doctor came back in and said, are you ready for me to cut you? Here's your C-section marks. This is where we're going to do. And with that, the client gave one large push and baby's head descended in such a way that the doctor was able to see the progress and said, oh, that's different. Okay. And we had a vaginal birth. And that's when wow, I really cool. started realizing how much we can affect baby's position. The power position. of the positioning. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the difference between posterior and anterior, good chance the baby's going to come out no matter what. Right. What about transverse? 
Well, a true transverse lie is a C-section if a baby is fully side-lying in the uterus. That's not something that we can deliver. And that's really rare, isn't and it? It's very rare. What, do you, is there a cause for that? Well, actually, a lot of times we do find that there's a different uterine shape, mm. perhaps, and there's reasons that a baby won't lie correctly. And um, sometimes there's even reasons with a mom that can be fear-based, uh, you know, or a baby that just, like I said, their personality is such that they are not going head down. But usually, medically speaking, it's mostly in regards to the shape of the uterus. Uterus, interesting. Because I heard a story once of a, a mom who did spinning babies, which is the, you know, the course uh, chiropractors can do Webster technique and try mm-hmm. to get this baby and it would flip down, um, head down. And then within a day, it would go back up um, breach and then it flipped back down. And, and then finally it went transverse and this mom was just like, dang it all. And then they went in for the C-section and the cord is only six inches long. And had that baby been born vaginally, it would have caused a huge uterine problem, right. placental problem. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, that little baby kind of knew. And so you hear these stories and you're like, mm-hmm. how wives taily are we going to get? Like, do you think there's any truth to this? Like the baby kind of knows, or is it just a physiological uterine thing or like? Yeah, I think it's really twofold. I think that babies are pretty wise and they do know, but I also think there's a way to read very carefully um, a medical chart as well as a woman and what her body's doing and get a feel for what is actually going on. If it needs to be a hospital birth, that is the right place to be. And like Mm -hmm. you said, with a short cord, you want to be there. And a transverse baby, if this baby hasn't gone head down by a particular number of weeks, then there's a reason for that. Because transverse is very weird. It's very weird. Um, Breach, though, is more common Mm -hmm. than transverse, Mm because transverse is like completely sideways. That's not going to make your tummy a funny shape. Um, but the breach is when the head is up, and I've heard wives' tales that, oh, this baby just loved a mama's heartbeat. <laughs> right. We don't know why. It used to actually be reported at 20% of babies were breech, and then the training for delivering breech babies changed over the years, historically. And as some of that training was lost and there were some medical risks to it, we really decided, culturally speaking, that we should have all va- babies be vertex head down. And so that is now the trend to really try and aim to get. Oh, so in the past they were okay with breach and they just attempted delivery, no worries. But now if you have a breech baby, doctors will do whatever they can to get the baby. Right. And if you hear tales of of women who live rurally, there was no local hospital and they just delivered a breech baby at home, those actually tend to go okay. There were not complications Mm -hmm. in most of those scenarios. However, that being said, there can be very different kinds of breach and some very complicated kinds. And there are still some skilled OBs out there who can handle that. But a lot of the training has been lost. And so most of us try to get our babies to be head down. Yeah, so what's the danger of coming out feet first? Well, it has to do with dilation, typically. Mm. Um, You don't want a baby to be without oxygen very long. And if their limbs deliver first... And for some reason, the cervix were to tighten around the neck. Oh. That might be a problematic scenario for a baby. Now, if the bum comes out first, same as about the same diameter as the head, it all goes very fluid. So there, yeah, typically. there's two different breaches. It's a footling breach, mm-hmm. right? And then what's the other one called? The little bum comes a out frank first. Frank breach. A frank yeah, breach. So frank so. is probably pretty hard because you're doing a folded baby. That's going to be bigger than the head, right? And sometimes, you know, we can still have an unexpected breach on occasion if if we do not 
notice, and typically we'll see them, but they can even flip in labor. Oh, stingers. These babies. Now, in all my experience, they've always come out just beautifully. And some of the best births, even the first time moms have had a breech birth where the baby came out and she just pushed. And sometimes we assist them in lifting their their limbs up as their head comes out just to help with the ergonomics that's of baby the, being born. That's the training that's kind of been lost is how to assist the... I just can't think about the call the midwife, the BBC show, <laughs> and the time that Chummy delivered a birth. Right, <laughs> right. That's when I think like I don't. I've never seen a lot, um, a breech birth, yeah. and so I just thought, oh, is that the training we're talking about? Like how they she lifted the mm-hmm. baby, and <laughs> I don't know. Yes, and there's some really great courses out there on on reteaching breech and how to deliver a breech baby. But the majority of babies are going to be head down. And then with that, there can be complications of whether a hand is next to their head. We call that a nuchal hand or whether their hand or their head is not as tucked to their chin, their chin mm-hmm. to their chest how as about, it should be. How about a face presentation? Have you, you ever know, had one of those? I've never had a full <laughs> face presentation. But in the moment, there is training for that as well. Mm-hmm. It's not ideal. And I work so hard to make sure that babies are in the correct position prior to delivery Mm -hmm. or even prior to crowning. So most often I'm able to help them even manually sometimes tuck their chin to their chest and really get themselves into that appropriate position for birth. So we can do things like dialing the baby's head to help turn a posterior baby um, we can have mom up on a birth stool in some open squats. We can mm-hmm. we can change the position and therefore change the dynamics of the hips. What we can account for is pelvic shape and size, and there are some different. Yeah, types what about of pelvis. those people say that? Oh, your your pelvis is too small. You'll never be able to give birth vaginally. Or is there any truth to that? Is there is there is there? I think that's a generalization that has come through our culture based on fear. I think without having ever been in labor, you can't say that you would never be able to fit a baby through. I've seen some pretty miraculous deliveries Mm -hmm. where babies came through spaces that a mom was perhaps told she'd never be able to have that baby or her mom told her, I always had C-sections, yeah. so therefore you'll always have C-sections. Well, yeah, okay, so you know how medical terms are all really complicated. I love the medical term for the hormone that causes all your joints to get loosey-goosey near the end. Relaxin. Relaxin. I'm like, oh, that's that's a medical term I can stand behind. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's why women, um, maybe if she hadn't get, gotten the um, opportunity to get to labor, the relaxin hormone hadn't opened her hips or, I mean. There's so many different reasons for baby position, but that is one of the things where a client or a mom, she can assist in her own birth by believing positive things and speaking it over her birth. I am going to go with this. I'm going to relax Mm -hmm. and kind of start to believe that she can do it. And for me with my first baby, I absolutely had to flush every story, every horror story, every fear out and really start at ground zero with a, am I okay in this moment? Yes. And that's how I was able to manage my first labor. But I would say, medically speaking, there's so much that we don't know about how babies come out. But I will say, they do come out. Yeah. They do come out. Yeah. Okay, so what is a shoulder dystocia? So a stuck shoulder, basically. If a shoulder is stuck inside the pelvis, perhaps the head has already crowned and delivered, but the shoulders are not coming out. They are supposed to rotate to fit correctly. That is called a shoulder dystocia. That can be a real medical risk factor. So a baby comes out 
face down, directly face down. But then as it comes out, it rotates, so it's almost like it then comes out sideways. Right. Why doesn't it come out sideways to begin with? The shape of the pelvis is actually better oriented for shoulders after the baby has fully delivered a head and turned toward oh, one hip or the other. I guess your face and is more, your head is more long, so then your shoulders you. shifts to go the same direction your body went. So kind of like a little, so they right. do a quarter turn. Right. So it's called an internal rotation. And the baby actually does a lot of work in labor that we seem to discount or not realize. But these babies are quite amazing. It must be a reflex, right? Right. And they do this pretty naturally. Now, if for some reason their shoulders are disproportionate or pelvis shape the mom or many other reasons. Or positioning of the mom. Positioning of the mom, baby size. Um, lots of things can contribute to a shoulder dystocia. But if we see certain signs of this baby not rotating the way they should, then we as midwives need to have the skills to deal with that shoulder dystocia and deliver a baby anyway. Mm -hmm. So take some strong pushes if you're the client delivering this baby and you cannot give up. Please don't. If you're in the middle of pushing your baby out and you have a head out and we need you to give more more give it strength. All you've got. Mm -hmm. I personally coach my clients to change positions. So again, back to this fetal positioning. You need to make the shape of the pelvis Do you different. Do wow, routinely ask them to change after the head's out or only if you start feeling that there's a dystocia? Only if there's a definite dystocia will we need to change positions. And most of these clients, if there's any risk factors prior to labor and delivery that we might be headed towards shoulder dystocia, I will actually give them those positions prior to labor and what are those positions? So one of them is called a runner's position. And it's it's if you were on your hands and mm -hmm. knees and took one leg up, flat foot, close to your ear. It's a very oh. extenuated stretch. So it's like but proposing it opens the, pelvis. the proposal with your head down. Right, right. That's how I gave birth to like my last lunge. one. Mm -hmm. It felt very natural. Like I just felt as soon as I got in that position, she it's shot great out. Great for shoulders. Great for shoulders. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work. Oftentimes there's one on the back uh, and fully reclined, but in a squat with the legs closer to the ears. Um, there's several others. There's also midwifery techniques that we do with our hands and really rotate a baby and help free shoulders. So that's where training comes mm -hmm. in. Yeah. But at that point, I will say, again, the client, the person in labor, she needs to engage. And so some some good coaching at that point makes a difference as well with a shoulder so, dystocia. Um, the surges, contractions are involuntary, but a mom can increase the effectiveness by pushing. Right. Like, can she actually create enough force mid, like in between contractions? Like if she's not having a contraction, could she initiate enough force to make a difference or does she have to wait for a contraction? She actually can initiate enough force and usually with a contraction, her power on top of her body's power will be able to move this baby. Wow. Especially if I'm able to Because I always wondered that because I could tell that moms didn't have a contraction and then midwife is saying, push, push. And I'm like, how is she doing that? There are moments where it is sheer power mm. of the mom and she can do it. Mm -hmm. And also, like I said, with a skilled professional there to assist between her power, her body's power and the skill level of the midwife to mm -hmm. be able to rotate and move that baby and her willingness to change position, we can really get that baby out pretty fast. So a shoulder dystocia can be resolved. And then after that, there are some other things to deal with, potentially hemorrhage, so bleeding. And then we need to act fairly quickly on that. And are I'm, you more likely to have a hemorrhage if you have a dystocia? You are. Why is that? Well, sometimes it means you've had a bigger baby. So oh. that can 
cause it. It also depends on how long this woman has been in labor. Mm-hmm. So uterine acne, where it just does not want to clamp down and stop bleeding. Oh, a tired uterus. That makes sense. Tired and, and wimpy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then she can't forcefully, she can't will that uterus to clamp down. At that point, the only thing that she can do to participate in, and some people maybe would find this different, but I will tell my clients, okay, stop bleeding. Tell your body to stop bleeding. And mm-hmm. while I'm doing that, I'm doing the medical things. So I'm also mm-hmm. massaging their fundus. And we have medication for that, Pitocin and Methogen and other meds that we can give to go ahead and stop that bleeding I know my last one, I was bleeding quite a lot and she, the midwife, you know how in the hospital, they just like push down really hard and so painful. And she actually, instead of doing that really hard, she held it firmly for two hours. Right. The nurses are not going to do that. But she did. She held me there for two hours. Wasn't fun, but it wasn't painful because she was just holding it. And I I think that... That's dedication. I appreciated that so much because I don't know that I could have stopped bleeding as effectively. (laughs) And we have some preventative measures we can do as well if we suspect, for instance, if we've delivered a baby with a a shoulder dystocia, we might actually have to work on that baby and give them some puffs of air and breaths Mm -hmm. as well. Because sometimes they've been in that position for a little while and they really need to get that blood flowing. And so we work with dealing with a baby as well as assisting a mom. And so there can be a lot going on in a shoulder dystocia scenario. Mm-hmm. However, the the part of the client where the mom is able to still be engaged with her body. So a lot of times they want to actually disconnect from their body after their delivery. Yeah, done. I already got my prize. Done. And we're done. And I will tell them, <laughs> you're all done bleeding. We're not going to bleed anymore. This is what I'm doing. I'm giving you this I'm medication. Super tell offended. your body The first time to. I gave birth, they're like, hey, now I got to push out the placenta. I don't know what part of me didn't like connect that there was a placenta that had to be birthed too. I don't know. I even took a birthing class, but I remember in that moment thinking, wait, wait, what? Yeah. No one told me about this. (laughs) Wait, more pushing. (laughs) And then they're like, don't worry. It doesn't have bones. But I was so offended. I remember like the feeling was offense. Like you want me to excuse me? What? (laughs) Right. Don't say push to me again. (laughs) Yes. But women that get out of the experience before they're done with it, that can create problems. So even emotionally, if they back out of it. Oh no, I see that all the time. I will have them come back into their bodies, ground themselves, finish this process. Finish it. Finish this process. Get this uterus. While I'm doing all my medical things that that I do. That is really powerful advice. Yes. I will also coach the mom because I know that truly she's going to be able to enjoy this baby better if she doesn't have a hemorrhage and if she doesn't have to go in for a lot of medication and extra IV fluids and, and such. So I just tell her, come into your body be done bleeding, Mm -hmm. you're going to deliver this placenta. And interestingly enough, people discount the fact that there's a mind-body connect. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, we can, we have totally, we're totally fine telling people, just will it, go run two miles. Mm -hmm. Why can't we will it and tell our uterus to stop? And tell yourself to deliver that placenta. The worst case scenario is when I hear from clients in labor, I can't, I can't, I can't stop bleeding. I can't deliver my placenta. I can't yeah. do this. Or so-and-so uh, is going to be mad at me. And, th- and they're just completely out of their mind with worries and fears. And and I need them to come back into their body. So I really coach them. You can hmm. have this placenta. We're going to do this together right now. I'm wondering now I'm going to have to go home and psychoanalyze why I bled so bad on my last one. There's reasons. Yeah, I'm sure there's reasons. Well, and then I wanted to also ask you about, um, there's physical blocks, there's positioning the baby, but then there's also emotional blocks. 
Right. So emotional dystocia is basically where your labor slows or stops because of an emotional reason. So that is a whole spectrum Mm -hmm. of areas that you can deal with. Now, some of this preventatively, if you're in a good place prenatally, you can Mm -hmm. actually identify some of the potential emotional dystocia that could occur. For sure. Or if you've had a baby before. If there's, for instance, trauma that has come with you from past experiences, that would be something emotionally that you know might get in the way during your labor. Mm -hmm. Fear is one of the factors that we do need to deal with in labor. And all of us have moments where I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can do this. That's just a normal part of labor. Yeah. But working through those fears and really protecting your birth space as well, not allowing anyone that's going to accentuate those fears or bring more to it or speak anything negative about you or your birth, um, that can help. But really dealing with an emotional dystocia mm-hmm. sometimes means that a client or a mom, she just needs to get internal yeah. and get into that place where she's able to identify Am I afraid? And I ask people, what's the greatest way that you can help move forward from an emotional dystocia? And they'll give me all kinds of different guesses in my childbirth classes. And I'll usually say, just speak out the fears and yeah. let them go. Well, so in my last... Lose their power. In my last, I thought I was in labor. My first was... Um, it was it was a very distorted experience just because of, you know all happened so I didn't really understand labor. My second one was um, fully augmented um, maximum dose of potatoes and broken waters. So I didn't really understand that one. Um, my third one I actually woke up in transition, so that was a little new. And then so by the fourth, I'm like, here's I've had my fourth baby and I've never experienced labor all the way through like naturally. So I was feeling a little bit first time mommy and a little bit scared and. So I thought I had gone into labor and and I called everybody over and then it stopped. <laughs> and I'm I'm very socially aware sometimes, not always. And I just felt embarrassed that I called these mm-hmm. people out at 2 a.m. and I was super, you know, so my midwife sent them all to bed downstairs and um she was talking to me and I was just feeling really discouraged and she said, "Well, we have a couple of options." She said, "I you can um we can break your water, which I wasn't really a big fan of that because I wasn't obviously in labor anymore. She said, or we could just all go home. No shame. No problem. This is a false start. But I was four days overdue. I was done being pregnant. And uh, she said, no problem. We'll just come back next time. Or you and your husband can get together and pray and figure out why you're blocking this birth. And I was like, ah, offended. Like, why would I be blocking this birth? And how dare you like get into my spiritual realm? I'm a very private person. And how would you accuse me of? And so all these thoughts in my mind, and then I just, shh, shut up. Maybe you should try that one. <laughs> and so I was like, I'll take the third one. <laughs> so, so, um, I woke up my husband because, you know, he was so exhausted because labor is really hard. And, um, and we prayed together and then we took a walk and I felt things kind of change, shift while we were taking right. a walk. And I would... <laughs> We still tell the story because it's eight years this week ago that we did this. And he still tells the stories about how I would stop for a surge contraction and I would hang on him and he would be like trying not to swat the mosquitoes because like he didn't want to disrupt my zen. But I was completely oblivious to the swarm of mosquitoes that followed us the entire neighborhood. Anyway, we come back and then I get on my hands and knees and I I felt this really big surge. And I was like, oh, oh, that felt different. And I was, I never looked back 
right. look back after that after that and it was it really was an emotional block we were going through a pretty hard time with our family and and this is a fourth baby in six years that's a lot of babies and um yeah there was just a lot of pressure my family was in town and there was just, just it was the fourth of july and Anyway, and so yeah, once those blocks had cleared, the labor just progressed and I was just, I was blown away. So right. I just like, I'll never forget like the offense I felt though at the right, exactly. spiritual, but that's what you're explaining, right? Yeah, there are definitely spiritual, supernatural elements that we don't always understand, but sometimes we can feel or fears or tension that can actually affect our labor or even other people in the room or our birth history. So for me to go into a labor, I really try to acclimate to where my mom is at. Where is this client at and what's going on? And then I assess what's going on in the room. Hey, do you think, you know, that whole nesting thing where they go crazy cleaning the week before the baby comes? Do you think if they're not allowed to do that, like if there's a block that that like, a fit, I don't know, I'm just starting to get like woo-woo in my mind. like. Right. Yeah. That, you know, if she doesn't get that out of her system, that that can affect her birth because she can feel like things are unfinished. Hormones are just really interesting <laughs> and they're really hard to put in a box. Oh, that's if what there's I love one thing about we know birth. about women. Yes. That's what I love, I love and hate about birth is that no one really gets to understand, the, you know, what's inside a woman's head because right. of the hormones. And right. And what goes on in her head often directs her labor. So the trick again is to speak out the things that are in her head and really get real with those. You can't always do that with a room full of people. Sometimes a mom has to get in the shower by herself to work these things out. And other times, like in your case, you went away and you and your husband prayed, got together, took a walk, mm -hmm. reoriented, came back. And sometimes there's physical things going on as well where I may see a labor start, stop, start, stop, and it has to do with the cord and the placenta and the baby's position and really needing some time. And so some patience is involved. So even that emotionally, that a mom could let go in some ways mm. of her own No, I want lines. to control everything. Right. That so that doesn't always not... work yep. with well, parenting I, well, either. I was super mad. She was late. Did right. she not know the due date? And then you have to come to terms with this place of surrender that no, we all hear about. No, surrender. And right around 39 weeks, I'll ask, did you have the 39-week cry? Because yeah. oftentimes at that, people, at that point, their expectation yeah. has not been met. And we really have to come to terms with, for me, I remember feeling like, okay, I surrender. Nope. If I'm pregnant forever, <laughs> it's going to well, be okay. Well, I remember literally thinking like a split personality. I was I, I, I will just actually be pregnant forever. This is my new existence. I will just have to come to terms with it. And, you know, and then the other part of me going, you're ridiculous. This is your fourth baby. You know it will come out. And the other part going, no, actually, there's no, no evidence to the contrary. <laughs> right. Like, exactly. Oh. And then speaking good things about your birth really matters. Speaking that this baby will come out, this mm -hmm. labor is going to move forward. Because emotionally, if you lock everything up really tight, that's what your body is going to do. And we know that fear can create tension in your body, which yeah. can create pain, which can send you into that spiral. And, and to break that spiral, not only do you need good emotional support, 
and a moment alone sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it's alone. But also mm-hmm. asking your creator for help can really be beneficial mm-hmm. or getting internal in a way that is at a different level because labor isn't like other processes in life. It's not something you think your way through. So I've had a lot of clients that want to try to think, think their, their way, way through, through. The, the labor. And it's okay. I can certainly give them very specific things to do and I'm good at that as well. I say, okay, we're going to do three contractions in this position, five in this position. Yeah, because you're the coach. She, right. She's the one. Yeah. But at the end of the process there, you still have to come back to what's actually going on and are we experiencing an emotional dystocia? Also, in America, I think the last statistic I read was one in four women have actually had sexual abuse of some sort. So that can contribute as well. So if if things have not been processed, if they have not been talked about, and if you don't have a trust relationship with the person delivering your baby, and yeah, that that's team, a whole nother. We should do a whole nother a whole episode nother on subject matter on sexual trauma in birth because it's a big, big deal. Right. Or fear that something is going to happen to your baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a fear that, for instance, your baby is going to die in labor, and it is your worst fear, and it's what you've been told. You're actually kind I knew of that you tell yourself stuck. too obsessively. Right. You're yeah. stuck in this place in your mind. So just speaking that out and really getting mm-hmm. some good coaching and some forward thinking. I remember my block was I was afraid this baby wouldn't be loved, that I wouldn't have enough right? love because she was the fourth and we were already dealing with so much on our plates that how could my heart open up any bigger? And as soon as I had spoken that, I knew that it was false, like that I would right. be able to love this baby. So getting rid of the lies Mm -hmm. that we tell ourselves. Also, unplanned pregnancies, unknown. I mean, a lot of times people are speaking things they don't even realize. I can't handle this. I wasn't planning on this. I don't really know how I'm going to handle this baby. And that can internalize. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so internalizing that can definitely cause emotional dystocia as well. What about um, people in the birth space that aren't safe? Yeah, so it's very important to protect. What your do we say? Space. What do we say? Safe? What do you mean? I mean, nobody's going to like whack you with a, a stick right. while you're in labor. But so what do let's we mean just by define it? that. Remember going back to women. Remember how they were made to feel during mm-hmm. labor, and believe it or not, babies are picking up on a lot as well about how their mom is being made to feel and how that labor is going and how it's being managed and treated. But everyone in the room contributes. And so you need to have a safe space emotionally. If you're around a person that you don't think you could tell them off to get out of the room or or let them know exactly how you feel, then probably that's not a safe person because we know that with our really safe emotional people, we can let them know our actual feelings. Mm-hmm. We can express what's going on inside of us. And so everybody's going to labor a little bit different. But if you feel threatened at all or pushed or bullied or shoved into different places or even like you're broken, this labor isn't moving along as fast as it should. Those things all contribute. Or if, for instance, a relative has fear about birth, but they're in your birth space. Mm-hmm. Or even a midwife, if they had fear about it. Or a doctor. I've been at plenty of hospital births where somebody in the room had fear on them and it just perpetuated into the room. It was right there. And so if you can clear that space and really just kindly this is my birth space. I'd really like some alone time or I'd really like to just have mm-hmm. my support person here Sorry, with me. Sorry, I just had the sage stick in my head. You wave a sage or an incense and you say, all fear be gone. <laughs> no, but... You do have to sometimes be really stern about fear. Fear <laughs> get out of my room because it's not supposed well, to dictate Well, a lot of women birth. will have affirmations hanging in their yeah. room and I used to think, well, what's the point? She's Her eyes are closed the entire labor. What's the point of having it? But I yeah. think it's important um, because she set intentions for the space. She's like, right. I'm putting this... Um, 
quote up, this something that gives me strength, and this is the strength I want in my first phase. Right. And so my job is very dual purpose. So I am there, one, as a medical professional, of course, health of mom, health of baby, safety. I'm going to do everything that I'm trained to do medically. Mm -hmm. But what clients don't always realize is I'm also there as a advocate for them in another realm, kind of just the space that is birth. So I'm going to give them confidence. I'm going to speak good things over them. I'm going to say, you can do this. You're doing a great job. Let go of those fears. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it. And I'm going to help move them forward from a place of fear into that place of victory. And sometimes that is a long process. My husband has a joke. He calls me crowbar midwife because I'll spend a lot of time. (laughs) I know. I said, that's not a very flattering midwife name, but he knows when I come home from a birth and I put my heart and soul into delivering that baby and really helping the family work through things, sometimes it does feel a little bit like you're crowbarring past stuff to have yeah. a baby. It's a lot easier to get um, get that stuff. Well, sometimes you can't. It just comes up in the labor and you, you right. can't have, um, like I had no idea I was up against those blocks till the labor mm-hmm. sort of started. Um, but other times you can know that you have certain things and work through them before the birth. Right. It's almost like personal training. You don't just up and run a marathon if you know you can't run a mile. Right. <laughs> but and remember the mind body connect. Mm-hmm. What you set in your mind definitely affects your body. Yeah. Definitely. And so postpartum, even if I or uh, for instance say there was a difficult labor and maybe there was a shoulder dystocia and I'm working on a baby, I have had the pleasure of being able to use all my medical knowledge to resus a baby or resuscitate this baby while being able to say, now come into your body and breathe, baby, and have the parents touch their baby, talk to their baby while Mm -hmm. I'm working on this child, adds an extra level that's not always present in all birth situations. But they don't know, parents don't realize how much authority they have over this child to just speak into this child and that this baby is looking and waiting to hear their Mm -hmm. voice, looking at them, waiting for them. Well, the baby has listened to their voices their entire lives. Right. So why wouldn't it be attuned to the parent's voice and, and, and that help keep the baby here and working hard to... Right. So I can do all of my medical things that I'm going to do and I will follow all those through. But at the same time, I'm often coaching parents, talk to your baby, which is opposite of what you often hear where, where parents in particular hospital situations might all have to step back and away from yeah. their child. But even if they can talk to their baby, it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. That baby will respond. I've seen it so many times where a baby just needs to hear... Breathe. Come into your body. Be present. Breathe. And and speak that life over them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you balance with I I love how you balance the medical side and the, you know, the the mechanics of your pelvis with the supernatural spiritual side of will and desire. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to say yeah. about how those inner work together. Mm-hmm. And again, that birth space and, and having what a provider like. that believes in you in and your will and your, <laughs> oh, your yeah. desire. I'll go the extra hundred miles for my clients. And and with that being said, sometimes call it intuition or, or call it um, prayer or dreams, whatever you want. Sometimes I will have a sense that I need to almost red flag a certain situation. For instance, maybe we do need to be in a hospital for a cer- certain birth. And so when I see any kind of risk factors at all, by that time in prenatal care, we've developed such a relationship of trust that if I say, you know, we really need to go in and mm-hmm. and have this abnormality evaluated, 
they're okay and they know I'm not going to leave them. I'm always yeah. going to be with them. Yeah. And sometimes we do have to walk through really difficult birth experiences mm-hmm. and that actually can strengthen our personal character and lots of different things. We can pull good things out of that. But you don't want to do it alone. So yeah. I try to just well, I, be I, there. I, I think that there's a difference between struggling and suffering. Right. I don't believe that birth can be without a struggle because, I mean, you are doing a physical feat mm-hmm. um, and you're changing your entire family and your life. I mean, that is going to be work. Right. But to suffer in it and to come away with trauma, that is needless. I don't believe exactly. that we have to have suffering to make our character. I believe we struggle to make our right. character, but that we don't, that we shouldn't. That women shouldn't expect that this should be a traumatic situation. Exactly. So I try to lend my strength whenever yeah. possible to those that need it most. And sometimes it's it's a dad or someone else in the room that also needs that strength and that support. I've seen so many situations where it just mattered to the family that I was able to be there and, and give them the additional level of support yeah. that they need in that scary, otherwise scary scenario that they went through. Um you yeah. know, they come out victorious. And, and that changes their postpartum too. Exactly. Changes changes the way this family is built. Right. Yeah. So I'm often kind of a forerunner for them, looking for warning signs, looking for signposts ahead, watching things, correcting things before we get there. So the key to midwifery is actually very preventative. Mm-hmm. Lots of what we do is preventative, but also in the moment to be able to step in both medically where needed, but oh, also I like encourage that, emotionally and supernaturally mm-hmm. in all those arenas to be able to speak to every level of what's going on will bring forth a different scenario. I love that you you it's preventative mm-hmm. and you're using tools before so that you're not having to manage exactly during the birth that you've already, oh, that's yummy. I hadn't thought of that, I hadn't thought of that concept that way before. I have to mull on that. Um Thank you so much for bringing your expertise. Like I said, like when I, after I've seen you at, I don't know, countless births at this point. And I just, wow, you, when my clients say I I pick, uh, they tell me their name of their midwife. I'm like, oh, you, you did good. You did good. You're going to be just fine. (laughs) So thank thank you you so much for sharing your expertise. And if people want to know more about you and your practice and your philosophy on Mm -hmm. birth, where did they go? Life Midwife on Facebook. It's Laura O'Brien, O-B-R-Y-A-N. And I stand for life. And I, I really enjoy helping these mothers be victorious. There's some birth videos people can can look at. People don't realize what you do is so amazing. And splicing together these birth videos that are fabulous, even though what the client has been through has been just up and down and mm-hmm. hard work. Oh, you see that so in the you, films, though. You, you know, get you to do. appreciate it. Yeah. But um, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. me on today. Thank you. <laughs> Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.